Jesus Christ and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath evening. Uh, it is a blessing to, again, join with you all. Uh, and while it is a blessing, I think we could all agree that we are longing for the, the time that we can all get together and, and meet physically and see one another's faces and embrace one another uh, in the, the way that Christ has has called us to to do so. And so uh, hearing uh, some of the saints ask about different prayer requests, uh, it, it is definitely uh, weighing on at least myself as I, I think about and, and, and long for the time where we can just be together and, and uh, we can look at each other face to face and encourage each other and embrace one another uh, as we are all experiencing different difficulties in our lives and in our families. Again, this is our sixth week uh, apart from one another as we are practicing what has been really, I think, kind of mandated uh, of social distancing. Uh, we had mentioned this morning that we'd like you all to pray for us, that the Lord would give us wisdom as the the days and the, the weeks are, are passing, that God would give us wisdom as to uh, when when it would be a good time for us to start to gather together. And so uh, be praying for us because we, and not because we're just itching to get back together, although that is, that is a case, but uh, we, we are just trying to, to have discernment as to um, how long is long enough. So we'll be praying for that. And as the weeks go by, um, keep us in prayer and, and we'll keep you all informed and we'll be uh, asking your insight and all that other kinds of things. But that's at least something that we're praying for at this moment. Um, Next Lord's Day evening, we will be having a we meeting this way. Lord willing, if the Lord should endure, we'll be meeting this way and we'll be meeting to pray in this way. This will be in the evening. In the evening, we'll meet to pray. I, I probably will do what I did uh, just a few minutes ago, asking each as I gone, went down the line uh, what you need prayer for. I probably will write them down and then ask individually if someone could pray for a specific issue. Uh, as as each item comes up in our prayer list. And so we'll be praying like next Lord's Day evening, and we're all looking forward to that. Again, thank you for all of the tithes and the offerings that you all have been faithfully giving. Uh, the uh, rent is still, you know, still needing to be paid, and light bills are still needing to be paid, all of those things. The, the bill collectors, for the most part, uh, they, they don't forgive anything. They might delay something, but they don't forgive anything. So uh, continue to, to, to give, but not just, not just to pay the bills. Uh, continue to give because God has commanded it. Continue to give because uh, your giving helps to further and, and uh, help to sustain the finances and the, uh, the necessities of the church. So we pray that you continue to give. Uh, again, we're praying for the children, as our sister Rose had mentioned. We're praying for you children. Uh, be patient with your mommies and daddies, daddies and mommies, as they're trying to figure out some of your homework um, and trying to work through different problems that uh, may be new to them, or at least new for a very long time. Haven't seen them in a long time. So pray for them that the Lord, that you would uh, be patient with them and that they would be patient with you through it all. Uh, I can remember how frustrated my parents would be sometimes when they were doing homework with me. Um, and so be, 
my mom would pick, my mom's right here. She would pinch me, uh, just out of her own frustration. <laughs> so, uh, don't pinch your kids. Don't pinch your kids. It doesn't help anything. Um, we'll refrain for all of you guys. We would like to, uh, go through our, our catechism and we will, uh, pray and then we'll, uh, present the law and the gospel this morning or this evening, and then we'll turn it over to Pastor Isaiah for this evening's lesson. Uh, our Baptist Catechism question, and it's the one that Pastor Isaiah went through this morning, it's question 18, and I think Brother Scott, he uploaded or set a link to the Catechism's questions. Uh, question 18 is this, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The answer the sin whereby our parents our parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. Uh, proof text is Genesis 3, 6, and 12. Uh, we know that when uh, the Lord placed Adam in the garden, that he uh, placed him in the garden with certain commands and with certain regulations and certain restrictions. One of those restrictions that is involved in what is called the covenant of works is a restriction against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Adam, who was our federal head, and Adam, who was also uh, to be leader there in the garden, failed to guard his wife and keep her from the tree. So therefore, Satan tempted Eve, and Eve led Adam astray. And when Adam was led astray uh, in his sin, he also led all of us astray into sin. And so uh, we are all therefore guilty, which leads us really to uh, our gospel, law and gospel uh, proclamation for this evening. Uh, Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. My wife and I have just finished reading the book of Exodus. We are now embarking on the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, I was reminded of how many times in the book of Exodus the command that we're going to read tonight is upheld. Uh, it is that uh, that covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant. It is the, the Sabbath, and it's honoring and it's keeping. Let's go to verse 8 of chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and command to honor the Sabbath. And it is interesting that many will consider the the Sabbath to be a, a law that was established uh, on Mount Sinai. Well, we believe that the Sabbath was established at creation. Therefore, the Sabbath and its command is a creation ordinance, not a law that was later codified in stone. 
on uh, Mount Sinai. Therefore, this law of keeping the Sabbath is not applicable only to Israel, but this law is applicable to all people. Uh, even found in the, the text of Genesis chapter 20, verse 8 and on, we see that uh, the law is not just for Israel, but it is for a slave. It is even for the sojourner. It is essentially for every single person, the law of keeping the Sabbath. For uh, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and he made the seventh day holy or he hollowed it. He sets the day apart as being uniquely his. When we think about Adam and his disobedience, as we've said before, of all of the commandments, I think it'd be interesting to ask then, how does, excuse me, sorry, how does Adam break the fourth commandment? In what way does Adam uh, break the Sabbath and become a lawbreaker in that particular manner? We believe that it was on the day that Adam had sinned and rebelled against God, that God came and visited with him. It would be that day that we believe normally God would come and visit with him. And it was on that day that when God came to visit, God was not only coming uh, to visit as he normally did, but he was coming to visit with judgment. And we believe that that day was a day that on that day that Adam sinned, it was the Sabbath day. It was the holy day. And so, therefore, Adam broke the Sabbath command to rest and to keep it holy. <clears throat> Let's pray, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> Ask the Lord to forgive us. And and when we do, uh, let's also take a time to confess our sins. I don't think we've done this for a while, but let's have a, a moment of silence to confess our sins after our prayer and ask the Lord to forgive us, uh, not only for breaking his Sabbath, but also uh, for breaking every other command. For we are guilty of them all. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and by the strength and power of your Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our sin and our rebellion. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. We believe that when Adam sinned, not only did he take your name in vain, not only did he exalt other gods above you, not only did he fail not to worship you alone, Lord, but he he also failed to keep the day holy and set apart unto you. And we also have done the same. We also have sinned against you. We also have broken your Sabbath and have treated it as our day and not your day. We have treated the Lord's day as an extended Saturday. We have failed to prepare our hearts. We have failed to prepare our minds. We have failed to use the day, Lord, for rest and for worship. Lord, we have uh, taken advantage of this day not to worship you, but to uplift and worship ourselves by doing what we would desire and not what you have commanded. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for exalting ourselves above you and your, the day that you have made for us to worship you. We ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, can you take a moment? Let's all take a moment and of, of silence. And let's consider and confess all of the ways in which we have not only broken this fourth commandment, 
We have broken all of your all of God's commandments. Let's take a moment and confess our sins to God, if you would, for just a moment. And now, brothers and sisters, in light of the fact that we acknowledge that we have broken God's law, that in Adam we have all failed to uphold that which God requires of his creatures, let's now turn to a passage wherein we can rejoice, not only because Christ, the second Adam, has done for us what Adam did not and could not, but that Christ has also called us to follow his example so that we might be where he is. Uh, Go to Hebrews chapter 4 very briefly. And as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 4, I wonder if all of you uh, know this passage. And think about it. The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, able to judge the intentions and thoughts or thoughts of intentions of the heart. I think we all are very familiar with that passage. The word of God is living and active. It's a double-edged sword. It's able to cut joint and marrow very da- uh, down to the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. Listen, brothers and sisters, we know that passage, don't we? You know the context of that passage. We love certain passages, but sometimes we pull them out of their context in order to see their their uh, the full fruit and and meaning of of what God is intending to say to us. The context of the Word of God is living and active. Listen to this. The context is. A discussion about the Sabbath. Let's consider Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Listen close. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest. What is the rest? The rest is the Sabbath that God has promised. Any of you who may seem to have come short of it. What is that? The rest that God has promised. For indeed, we have good news preached to us, just as they also. Who is they? Uh, The writer of the Hebrews is speaking about Old Testament Israel. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. The word was preached to them. And although they had the gospel preached to them, they didn't believe it. They had no faith to unite what they heard to what they should believe. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the writer is saying, but we we will have it. We have the rest. They did not. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere said concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. God has promised a rest, those who came before did not enter that rest because they did not have faith. Going on to verse 6, Therefore, 
since it remains for some to enter, there is a rest still laid up. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of their disobedience. He again, listen to this, fixes a certain day. Listen to what it says today. Saying through David after a long time, so long a time, just as has been said today. Today, if you hear my voice or hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a day, even though some have not entered that rest, God still fixes a day. So that a particular people can enter into that rest. Look at verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. If the rest that was spoken of in the Old Testament had been taken away, then God would no longer speak about a rest for people to enter into. Therefore, so there remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that Sabbath rest? What is that day? It is the Lord's day. And just as Old Testament Israel was sojourning and traveling to enter into what would be their promised land, and their promised land would be uh, a type of uh, Sabbath rest that they would enter into, we too are sojourning. We too are traveling to the holy city of God. And as we are traveling, we are given a a glimpse and a taste each Lord's Day of what is ours eternally in Christ Jesus. That is Sabbath rest. Look at verse uh, 10. For the one who has, listen to that, the one who has entered his rest, his is capitalized, it's Christ, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. The writer of the Hebrews is saying Christ has entered his rest. Why? Because he's finished his new creation. What did God do uh, after creating the heavens and the earth on the seventh day? He rested after creation was complete. What has Christ done when he uh, said it is finished in John chapter 19? He said it is complete. What's complete? The new creation is complete. Well, who is the new creation? The Apostle Paul says that if you are in Christ, then you are the new creation. You and I are the new creation. Christ has entered into that rest, and we who have faith in him, we too will enter into that rest if we place our faith in him. Listen to this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. Don't be like Old Testament Israel, who heard the word but did not believe. Listen to this. Who heard the word and did not believe? Listen to this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to separate soul, uh, joint and moral, soul and spirit, dividing the very intentions, uh, thoughts of intentions of our hearts. Do you see the context there? If you are in Christ, obey his word. He's given you this day to worship him, to use not for your own uh Not for your own uh, consumption, but for the delight of God. Therefore, delight in him on this day. Don't be like Old Testament Israel, who who heard but did not believe. The word of God is living and it is active. And thank God through Christ Jesus, he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he has gone ahead of us in his obedience. And because of his obedience, his new creation is complete. That is, we who trust in him. Let us therefore live in light of that.
Uh, let's pray and thank God. And I will also uh, add to that our pastoral prayer and turn it over to Pastor Isaiah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the mercy and the grace that you have given us in your perfect obedience. And in uh, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves and also doing what Adam failed to do. It is in the covenant of redemption you have come in our flesh. You have lived in perfect obedience to the law and all of its regulations. You have uh, laid down your life as a ransom and atonement for your people. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what is more, you have risen from the dead. It's the right hand of the Father and that you are there eternally and that you, Lord, will return for us and bring us into that Sabbath rest that you have entered into. Lord, we pray now that you would be with us as we uh, learn from Pastor Isaiah, that you would bless this lesson, that you would give to him, Lord, uh, wisdom and discernment, that you would give to him insight, that he may communicate to us, that he may faithfully exegete your word, that he has studied and showed himself approved, Lord, that you will help and bless his lips as he speaks to us. And as he does, even though it is in this most unorthodox way, it would be as though Christ himself were teaching us. Help us, therefore, to be attentive and to be alert, uh, to learn, to have ears open, minds alert, Lord, and hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, we pray for the saints. We pray for the strength and the health of every single one of your members. We pray that you would bless and protect each and every one of them. We pray for those like Sister or like Lucy, who is Chris's aunt, that you would uh, help her, Lord, who has just uh, was just contracted this this virus. Help her. We pray that this would be used as a means to bring her to faith. We pray that you would help her to uh, be open to hearing how she might be saved, not from the coronavirus per se, but from the sin that each and every one of us have uh, committed against a holy God, the holy God. We pray that you would help Chris maybe to be one who is used to bring the gospel to his aunt. Lord, we pray for uh, our sister Ariana. We pray that you would give her comfort, Lord. We pray that you would give her peace, Lord. We pray that in the midst of this storm, that she would know that, uh, that you are with her that you are not asleep, that you do not sleep and you do not slumber, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Oh, and as has been said before in one of the sermons, that you, Lord, make promises to us that no man can ever make to his wife. For you truly, you truly mean it when you say that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. Comfort our dear sister, Lord. Let her feel the warmth of your love and the warmth of the saints who love her dearly. God, we pray for our brother Dustin's father and for uh, his mother-in-law, or his, uh, I'm sorry, his uh, stepmother. We pray that this morning as he heard the message and the lesson that you would somehow work through, Lord, that message, that it would be as you have promised that it would be a means of grace that is when it is accompanied by your spirit, Lord, the word that it produces conversion and growth. We pray that you would use that lesson this morning to help.
maybe ask, help his father to ask more questions, to maybe consider uh, the difference and contrasting, Lord, what he is normally hearing and what he heard this morning. We pray that you would use that for your own glory. Lord, we pray for the elderly, as Sister Ophelia had said, and for those who have not received uh, the stimulus check, for those who are right now struggling with employment and with uh, finances, we pray that you would be their provider, that they uh, would learn to depend and uh, trust in you for every single one of their needs. I think all of us, Lord, could say with our sister Betty, we just want this thing to be over with. And Lord, while that is is uh, supremely, it, while that is true, uh, there is a a a more supreme truth other and beyond that. And that is that we just want you to be with us. We need you, Lord, every single moment and second of the day. We need you to sustain and protect and keep us, Lord. We pray for our brother Ralph and for his health that you would give him strength. We pray, God, that you would help him to know that. You are, as the scriptures are said this morning, that you are are causing our bodies to fade away. But help him to rejoice that although his and all of our bodies are fading away, that your word does not. And that you have made a promise to him that he will have a whole and complete body in the new creation. And when he and all of us who trust in you see you face to face, there will be no more ailments. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. Lord, we pray that our brother Ralph and all of us, for that matter, when we are experiencing pain, that we would all remember and rejoice and, and maybe even laugh. Because the pain of death has lost its sting in Christ Jesus. Lord, there are many other, other prayers. We pray for the parents as they are teaching their children that you would give them and the children patience with one another. That you would help us all to, uh, to remember that we are, are we are in a new uh, a new space for the time being. We are are doing things that we have not normally done, but but let us rejoice in it. Let us be able to look back and 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 look back fondly at the time when we were able to to be our teacher, to be teacher to our kids for once. Uh, in terms of school, help us to enjoy it and uh, to enjoy even the process. Lord, we pray that you would be with us all. Again, bless the lesson as we uh, are beginning to part, are preparing to partake of the, the food, Lord, of your word. We pray that you bless Isaiah and all of us as he teaches and as we listen. Christ, name we pray. Amen. Pastor Isaiah. Okay, good evening, everyone. So let me um first uh this is actually found online too. It's a um it's a pretty useful um explanation of the Baptist Catechism. It's by Benjamin Bendome. Uh you can find this online or it's uh on PDF as well. So if you look up um a scriptural exposition of the Baptist Catechism by Benjamin Bendome, uh Bendome, you'll be able to find his uh his exposition and what he simply does is he takes every question and answer and he gives you a short little uh, summary of the question and answer. So um, this is of some use to me um, and I think it's, it will be of some use to you. 
especially going along these um, questions and answers. So let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you will help us as we continue to learn, as we continue to grow. May your spirit be with me, may your spirit be with your people. We pray, Father, that you will help us and guide us along this lesson. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we just finished uh, last week question one of the catechism, and I'm going to read that question again. It says, who is the first and chiefest being? And the answer is God is the first and chiefest being. And we learn that the theology that our the writers of our catechism brings out in question one is that God is not only first with respect to he was before all others, but also that he is supreme. Um, he is first because he's eternal. He's about time. Um, he, he lives in eternity, as some might say. Um, but that doesn't mean that God has his own time. We also we also know that uh, God is supreme, and that's what it means when it says that God is the chiefest. Uh, God is supreme. Um, Brother Scott, if you could mute Brother Ray um, when you get a chance. Now we're moving on to question two of our catechism, which says, uh, ought everyone to believe there is a God? Ought everyone to believe that there is a God? The answer Everyone ought to believe there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. In our study today, uh, we want to focus on this question. And it's a fitting question after we have considered who is the first and chiefest being. After our catechism in question one has asked, who is God? Uh, It now asks, ought everyone to believe in this God whom we considered in question one? But not only ought everyone to believe in this God whom we have considered in question one, but also what is the great result of you deny uh, believing in this one who is first and chiefest? And it asks, ought everyone to believe in God? And the answer that it gives is yes. The theology that our catechism is bringing out in question two is called the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. Saints, if one was to ask you, how does someone know that there is a God? What would you say? If someone was to ask you, how does someone know that there is a God? What would you say? And there's a lot of answers that we can give to this question. We can look at the created order. We can say uh, this order of of the world and the way in which it is constructed uh, had to come from someone, but also it is being held up by someone. That's the world and the universe cannot come about by random chance, uh, but it had to come by by someone. Uh, We can consider various uh, philosophical arguments um, of why, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, we can look at the first cause of all things um, and, you know, go about that way. But commonly in our day today, 
the the overall consensus of how one uh, approaches the knowledge of God is that the knowledge of God and belief in God is irrational. That believing in God is nonsense. Many, many might say that uh, belief in God is only for people of faith. Uh, people who don't consider scientific arguments, don't consider uh, what the philosophers say, don't consider what the, quote, smart people say. But it's only for the people who want to believe that there is some sort of higher being out there. Friends, that is the common speech of the day, that belief in God is only for dumb people, and believing uh, in God, or I should say believing in God is only for dumb people, and believing that there's not a God is only for and reserved for the smart people. And here in question two of our catechism, the writers of our catechism are answering one of the most highly debated questions of the day. Not if God exists, because in question one, they've already presupposed that God exists. But rather, wants everyone to believe that God exists. And notice, saints, this question and answer shows no partiality. Again, question two reads, Ought everyone to believe there is a God? Answer, everyone ought to believe there is a God. Notice in both question and answer, it makes no distinction in mankind. But everyone ought to believe that there is a God. It doesn't say that belief in God is only for Christians or for Muslims or um, Jews. It doesn't say that belief in God is only for people who want to believe that there's some sort of higher power out there, or it's only for people who grew up in a home that was religious. But rather, every single person in this world ought to believe that there is a God. There's the question and answer. They show no partiality. So this evening, I want to answer this two questions. Number one. Why should everyone believe that there is a God? And number two, what is the result if one denies the knowledge of God? Again, why should everyone believe that there is a God? And number two, what is the result if one denies the knowledge of God? Let's answer the first question, that is, why should everyone believe that there is a God? Why should everyone believe that there is a God? Again, there are many answers that one can give to this question. Why should everyone believe that there's a God? But to answer the question, rather than looking at various arguments for the existence of God and the knowledge of God that everyone ought to have, I want to point to just one argument that I think is the most, not the most, but probably up there, the most powerful arguments that one could use in trying to prove that everyone ought to believe that there is a God. Why ought everyone to believe that there is a God? The reason is because the knowledge of God is an intuitive truth. Why ought everyone to believe that there is a God? The reason is because the knowledge of God is an intuitive truth. Or we can say that the knowledge of God is innate. It's internal within us. And what I mean by the knowledge of God being an intuitive truth or it being innate is simply this. 
because we are created in the image of God, we by nature know that God exists. Because we are created in the image of God, we by nature know that God exists. Now, let me first answer what I don't mean when I say that God has implanted the knowledge of himself within us. Because that's what I'm arguing for, that within every single person in this world, God has left the knowledge of himself within them, within their heart, on their conscience. They know that God exists. But what about, let me ask, answer what I don't mean by that. What I don't mean by that is that uh, children, let's say maybe they're two years old, uh, maybe even uh, five years old, can, or maybe even 11 months, can even can already speak of the existence of God by just looking at the created order. While the seed of religion, as Herman Bobbing says, is indeed inherent in humans, it takes a whole field of human life to make it grow. So my son, Owen, he has the knowledge of God within him, but he can't uh, properly speak of there being a God. Because he can't observe the created order yet. Nor do I mean that we as adults can sit in a room without even observing our hands, our body, without even observing uh, the created order outside of us, without even watching television or even looking at any debates between an atheist or a Christian, that they can sit in the room and then suddenly they believe that there's a God. They can come to a knowledge of God. But rather, as Herman Bobbing says, the innate knowledge of God means we possess both the capacity and the inclination to arrive at some firm, certain, and unfailing knowledge of God. Human beings gain this knowledge in the normal course of development and the environment in which God gave them the gift of life. It arises spontaneously and without coercion, that means force, and without scientific argumentation and proof. Now, notice what Bobbick is saying here. Because we are created in God's image, that we can come to a knowledge of God without scientific input, philosophical arguments, and without being forced to believe that there is a God. Simply put, saints, the knowledge of God doesn't need to be instilled in people. We don't need to teach people necessarily that there is a God, for they know that there is a God. But the knowledge of God, as Herman Bobbing says, belongs to humans by their very nature and arises spontaneously and automatically. Humans, in the course of a normal development, arrive at a certain knowledge of God without compulsion or effort. Think of it this way, friends. When language is taught to us, when we are young, when people are speaking to us and they're trying to teach us how to speak, why is it that we're able to repeat their words? It's because everyone naturally has the capacity to speak. God has given that to us. He's given us that inclination to recite words. We also want to say that when we consider the innate knowledge of God, we believe that man can look at the created order. They can look at and observe the, the stars and the heaven or the, the sun and 
and the skies. They can look at all of creation around us. And they can say that there is a God. They can say that this God had to come before us, which means he's eternal. They can say that he is the first cause of all things, that he is maker and creator. They can come to that knowledge, but what they can't do is they can't observe the created order and say that God is triune. They can't look at the created order and say that they're in need of a savior. That is supernatural theology. That is something that we'll talk about next week. But man has the ability, as Bobbing says, they have the capacity without scientific proof, without philosophical arguments, without us forcing them to believe in God. They have the capacity, the inclination to look at creator, the creation around them and say that there is a God. And saints, this is so important for us, especially for many of us who have interactions with our friends and family members who don't believe in God. Many of you probably have friends and family members who are atheists, who deny the existence of God. I've heard many atheists in debate and even talking to some say that if I just had one more proof for the existence of God, then I'll believe. Or if I just had just one more slam dunk philosophical argument for the existence of God, then I'll believe. Or if Christian just gave me a better argument for the existence of God, I'll believe. Some even say that if God just opened the heavens and spoke and said that I'm here, I'm real, then I'll believe. And what I'm saying is this, that man doesn't need arguments, that man doesn't need to watch every debate between a Christian and an atheist and then make up their mind. Man doesn't need scientific proofs. Man doesn't need more philosophical arguments. But rather man, because he's created in the image of God, he has the capacity to come to the knowledge of God by just observing the created order without any external people talking to him. Because God has implanted the knowledge of himself on their conscience. That's what we mean when we say that everyone knows that God exists. And that's true. Everyone knows that God exists. Man has the capacity to come to the knowledge of God by just looking at the creation around them. And friends, note here that when man finally says that God exists, when that atheist or agnostic, critic or skeptic, finally says that God exists out of his own mouth and he believes it in his heart. You have to note that he's not saying anything new. He's not saying anything that he already didn't believe. The problem, though, is he has finally stopped suppressing that knowledge of God. You see, saying the atheists, the agnostic, they don't want to believe that God exists. And the reason why they don't want to believe that God exists, well, it could be for a myriad of reasons. But one of them could be because they just don't want to give up their sin. So when I say that everyone knows that God exists, it doesn't mean that everyone doesn't suppress that knowledge. Because every single day, the wicked are suppressing the knowledge of God. But what I'm saying is man can come to the knowledge of God. They have the capacity to come to the knowledge of God. 
it arises out of them naturally without scientific proof, without philosophical arguments, without, uh, you know, forceful debates or anything like that. They can look at the created order and say that God exists. And this implanted knowledge of God, this innate knowledge of God that we have because we are created in the image of God has been the testimony of the church for centuries. I mean, this is not something that I've dreamt up, you know, throughout the whole week and then um, finally presenting it to you. But this has a long history of great thinkers of the Christian faith that have confessed the same thing. The great church father, John of Damascus, says the knowledge of the existence of God is naturally impressed upon all men by himself. The great medieval uh, theologian Thomas Aquinas says to know that God exists in a general and confused way is implanted in us by nature. Francis Turretin, the great reformed scholastic, says that there is implanted in each one of uh, in each one from his birth a sense of deity which does not allow itself to be concealed and which spontaneously exerts itself in all adults of sound mind. And lastly, John Calvin, which is probably the most famous of uh, all these quotes that I'm reading, he says in his Institutes that, that there exists in the human minds, and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity. We hold to be beyond dispute, since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him or consecrate their lives to his service. I particularly love John Calvin's quote here, because not only does he say that man has some sense that there is a God by nature, but God constantly renews and occasionally enlarges that sense of deity. Friends, this is true of you before you became a Christian, is it not? This is definitely true of me. I even can think of uh, Pastor Antonio when uh, he'll tell you himself that the way in which God saved him, the means by which God saved him was he got into a car accident. And then when he got into that car accident, he came to a knowledge of God that was far different than he ever had before. He knew that God exists, but but after he got out of that car accident and he survived, that God spared his life, he suddenly realized that God is for real. And his whole life changed after that. I think there, that in that car accident, that God renewed and he enlarged himself in order for Pastor Antonio to see him. I think of myself when my father passed away. That was a time in my life in which God enlarged himself and he renewed that knowledge of God that I had within me. I fought a little bit, but I got to the point where I believed in Jesus Christ. Think of yourself. Think of all the times when you maybe got into 
a car accident and survived and you know you could have died. Think of the times when you were uh, in a pretty bad situation and you got out of it. God preserved your life. He was enlarging himself and he was making himself known to you. He was renewing that knowledge of God and takes Calvin is saying, this is what happens to the unbeliever. That God is constantly reminding the unbeliever that there is a God. He's constantly enlarging this innate sense of knowledge of God that they have. God is constantly reminding the unbeliever that there is a God and he is their maker. And although man may attempt to diminish, destroy, and even drown out that sense of deity that God has implanted in his mind. Because men do that every day. God does not allow man to get rid of it. But constantly renews that sense of deity. Man can never remove that innate knowledge of God that they have within them. And man constantly suppresses that knowledge of God. Every day man is suppressing that knowledge of God. But for Calvin and for the Reformed tradition, for the Bible, whether man wants to accept that there is a God or not, whether man wants to accept that God is their maker, he knows it. Whether they want to accept it and confess it with their mouths, he knows it. He knows that there is a God. Where is the scriptural support for this innate knowledge of God that we have? Well, let me just give you one of uh, two verses in one chapter, which is, I think, the classic uh, proof text for this innate knowledge of God. Romans 1, verses 18 and 19 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here, let me stop. Paul is saying that God is revealing himself to all peoples. And all people continue to suppress that knowledge of God. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says this. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Notice what Paul is saying here. That the knowledge of God is evident. Not by the created order. First and foremost. Which it is. But the knowledge of God is evident within them. God has implanted the knowledge of himself. In every single human being. They know that God exists. And they continue to suppress that knowledge. In ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what we have, what we have, what we have, we learned in this first point, um, is that God has implanted the knowledge of Himself on all hearts and minds of men. And when I say men, I don't mean just males. It, that's short for mankind. So male and female. All men have a sense of God within them. They have a sense of deity within them. Man doesn't need scientific proofs or uh, philosophical arguments in order to come to a knowledge of God. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't uh, work or help. They definitely helped me. 
but rather the knowledge of God comes naturally by observing the creative order. It's, someone, it's sort of like if someone was talking to another one, and they were speaking about uh, how the world came about. Naturally, it should come to them that, yeah, someone had to make this. There had to be a first cause for all of this to come about. Let's quickly now consider the second point, which is, what is the result if one denies this knowledge of God? What is the result if one denies this innate knowledge of God and doesn't confess that there is a God? Our catechism answers by saying, it is their great sin and folly who do not. That is the answer to the result if one denies this knowledge of God. It is their great sin and folly if they do not. In 2018, a little boy came to the microphone, and he couldn't even speak. He was crying so much. So Pope Francis asked him to come on stage and tell me what's going on. Why are you crying so much? And the kid said that my father has passed away. Do you think he's in heaven? Now, before you answer that question, Pope Francis, just know that he was an atheist. But he was a good man. He baptized all of his children in the Catholic Church. But he was an atheist. Do you think my father's in heaven? And this little boy crying, he might have been maybe eight years old. Pope Francis says, well, if your father was a good man... And if he baptizes children in the Catholic Church, if he had at least sense enough to do that, then he's in heaven. Saints, the Bible is contrary to what Pope Francis believes concerning unbelievers. We see in Job 18.18, surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. Second Thessalonians 1.8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus. Psalm 79.6, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that refuse to call on your name. Friends, the Bible is clear that if one denies the existence of God, then their fate is eternal damnation. Now, let me add, though, that doesn't mean that if one believes that there is a God, that they're automatically going to heaven. But rather, belief in God is at least the first step to the road of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself, who is God in the flesh. And added to that in this life. If one doesn't believe in God, then our catechism says that it's the most foolish thing one could do. So if you don't believe in God, then you're damned for the life to come. And if you don't believe in God, then you're a fool in this life. The best verse that speaks to this is found in Psalm 14. One, you guys all know the verse. It says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this verse is really speaking of the one who 
who goes out outside. He observes the created order. He sees everything around him. He he considers himself and the complexities of his body and who he is. And he says, there's no God. The Bible calls that man a fool. You can't look and observe the created order and then come to conclusion this all happened by chance and randomness. But rather, the created order is God revealing himself. It is general revelation. The created order has God's fingerprints written all over it. It is, as Calvin says, the fear of God's glory. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. But the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Francis Sheraton says, God has so clearly, God has so clearly manifest himself in his works that men cannot open their eyes without being immediately struck with the majesty and splendor of so great a deity. Men can't even open their eyes without seeing the glory of God revealed through creation and say there is a God. You have to be blind to not see it. God has left man with no excuse. Man has no reason to deny the existence of God. There's never going to come a time when an atheist dies and when he gets to heaven, he's going to say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence. You didn't give me enough proof. And friends, this is what our catechism means when it says that it is the great sin and folly of all those who don't believe that there is a God. They will be judged for that for their unbelief. And in this life, though we think the unbeliever or the atheist, because they have all of these arguments, that they can probably talk our heads off by different facts, because they can quote all these dead scientists and all these great philosophers, that they are the smart ones. Saints, the Bible says that they are fools. They are fools. And as we close, how can we apply this lesson to our lives? Well, I believe that this lesson helps us uh, when, we, when we consider atheists and agnostics and critics and skeptics as we continue to talk to them about the faith. Since we know that God has implanted this knowledge of himself on everyone's heart, that we don't need to present every single scientific argument or proof and every single philosophical argument to man. That doesn't mean that you can't. I'm not discouraging anyone that's in that field and that loves doing that. But saints, the main problem with atheism, the main problem with agnosticism and those who are critics and skeptics of the faith is not a head problem, but it's a heart problem. You can present a long line of arguments they know that God exists. They just don't want to believe that God exists. It's a, it's a heart issue rather than a, a head issue. But, saints, this lesson is of great encouragement for us, though, is it not? For us who do believe, for us who do believe that there is a God, for us, we know that there is a God because God has made it evident to us, not merely by nature. 
God has made himself evident to us, not merely by showing himself off through the created order, but God has made himself evident to us by grace. God has given to us a divine and supernatural light. He's given to us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is that light in which we can see light. The Holy Spirit is that light in which we can observe the created order. And not only believe that there is a God, not only bow down to that God, but also believe in the revelation that he has given to us via the scriptures. We can believe that the created order was created by the triune God of Scripture. We can believe that we are dead in our sins and we need a Savior. Praise God that he has not left us in our hard-hearted states, that we are not the fools that say in our heart that there is no God. But we are the wise men, the wisest of all men, who build our foundation not on scientific proofs and evidences and philosophical arguments that are subject to change, but we build and we ground ourselves upon the solid and firm foundation of his word. Saints, praise God that he has taken us who once said that there is no God. And now he has said to us that I am your God and you are my people. He's given to us not merely natural theology. He's given to us not merely this intuitive knowledge that there is a God. But he's also given to us supernatural knowledge. He's given to us supernatural theology in which we can say that the God who created the heavens and the earth is my father. I believe in his son and I'm indwelt by his spirit. Let's pray. Our great God and father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for revealing to us via general revelation, via the created order. We thank you for implanting the knowledge of yourself upon our hearts and minds. Allow us to be patient with those who currently deny your existence. Allow us to be patient with the atheists and the agnostic, knowing that we once, we once were them. Sure, we didn't, we, we confess that there is a God, but we sure didn't live like it. Help us, Father. We thank you for implanting that divine and supernatural light within us, that we may be able to see light in light. In the Holy Spirit, we see the Son, who is the image of the Father. We thank you now that we can read your scriptures and we can love them. We don't read your scriptures and say that this is all make-believe and fairy tales, but this is all God-breathed. Thank you, Father, for giving to us such a knowledge. Through your Son and by your Spirit, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, before we um, I read to you all a blessing, um, 
is um, is there anyone that has any uh, any questions um, on the lesson? Uh, anything you want me to clarify? Um, 